What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Sapira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny. I'll tell you why. I'm gonna... That's a good one, Matt. No, I'll tell you why. Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagara. Bill, you hit me up. You wanted to talk about this case that you've been paying attention to, that you've been researching for some time, and that's the Oakland County child killer. Uh, it's four victims that were found in the uh, mid-70s, mid to late 70s, in Oakland County, Michigan. Not... not uh, Nothing to do with Oakland, California, as I initially thought. So we're going to get into it right now. I just want to remind everyone to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries and check out our Patreon page. That is patreon.com slash death row diaries. And Bill, I, I wanted to let you know of a new promotion that we that I came up with, and that is if you subscribe to Patreon we will guarantee that we will cover a case that you request. So, you know, that's pretty cool. Uh, if, if you sign up, we'll make sure that, that we'll do an episode on whatever case you want. Presuming, you know, of course, that Bill's allowed to talk about it. There's a few that he's not really allowed to talk about for legal reasons. But, you know, that notwithstanding, we'll talk about whatever you want on an episode, we'll devote an episode to it. So that's pretty cool, right? Yeah, no, it definitely gives the audience a bit of participation in the, in the podcast, and I'm always looking to look at different cases. It's you know, it's usually you and I, Matt, we're looking for cases to reinterpret or look at or open again or drop public interest. So if you have a case that you think is, is worthy of being looked at, look, every case involving a victim and a murderer or a child or anything is worth looking at. So this is definitely kind of cool, and it gives you and I an opportunity to look at cases outside our range of, um, or outside our viewpoint, because we normally look at cases that interest us when, in fact, we should be listening to the public as well. Yeah, and there's already been quite a few episodes we've done that came from someone suggesting a case, just sending me a message on uh, on Facebook or Instagram, um, and yeah, so it's always cool to interact with listeners that way. Um, so getting to it here, the Oakland County child killer. And this is, so this was a really big deal in this, in this county, in these little couple little towns. During this time, there was a major, major panic because, you know, this is small town Michigan. Uh, it was kind of before people were aware of serial killers before it was kind of a mainstream topic and 
this was the people in this town were on in these little towns in this county were on high alert because these four kids in pretty quick succession are found dead. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, let me just say this, that yeah, these four cases, the police believe that they're all connected. Um, and, and we're going to get into why this is possible. And then at the same time, it's not possible because of other factors that at this time, were not considered. Now, this, look, in any given county, whether it's big or small, um, there are things going on that the public doesn't know about. We learned about these kids because the papers started running articles about it at that time. It was the biggest manhunt in U.S. history for this particular killer, which has never been caught. Um, But... You know, as I researched this case, I found out there had been seven other kids taken from that area that were not associated, these law enforcement believe were not associated with this particular case. So at any given moment, whether you live in a large town or a small town, there are things going on around you that may be taking place that you don't know. And what I mean is child killings, murder, rape. A bunch of other things could be happening in that vicinity that you don't know about because, well, people are already let people know about things all the time. Now it's a little bit different because of the internet, but obviously all these things were going on at that time. No one knew about it. These parents were not aware of it, and if these kids kind of left their home. One of them going, uh, you know, to the Seven Eleven, an innocent act like that. One leaving, you know. Uh, home upset and going to a hobby place and ending up dead. So, I mean, I've always said, be aware, don't let your kids out. If you do, keep them within reach. If they're 10, 11 years old, those are prime ages for pedophiles, for monsters to try and snatch your kids up. So I think it's something to keep always in mind. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to just roam around town on my bike or walking around i never had any problems but but yeah that's right at that age where you're not quite old enough to protect yourself i think yeah you know and look we've talked about this a bit before and i mentioned that william bonning actually the freeway killer who killed in excess of 30 plus boys between the ages of anywhere between 12 and you know i think it was 20 if I, my memory serves me correct but this guy was on death row with me and you know again in the 70s when i was a kid my dad would drop me off on uh, on beach boulevard and i would take the bus to huntington beach to surf and william bonning actually when he mentioned in, in our many conversations that they're you know, about a boy that he saw and, and saw all the time. And he mentioned the bus stop. He mentioned very specifically a surfboard. And I had a very unique surfboard at the time. And when he mentioned that, I brought a picture out to him of me at that age. And he immediately just stopped in his tracks. And he looked at me and he said, you're him. You're the boy. And he said he had seen me a number of times he had considered trying to pick me up. And I asked him, why didn't you? And I know this sounds kind of weird, but he said, you look more like predator than prey. So, uh, 
that's pretty scary. May, it may, I mean, I'm not, I don't get scared very easily since I've been around all these killers all my life, but it did send a chill up my mind at that age, as a young boy, 12, 13, 14 years old, I was actually being looked at by a serial killer. And funny enough, now I hunt them, right? Yeah, that's crazy. That's such a crazy story. That's like an episode of a TV show, like the hairs on my arm and stand up. I mean, I guess, you know, when I was a kid, we would roll. I was lucky enough to have a lot of really good friends. I'm still friends with most of these guys. But, you know, we would roll like six, seven, eight, nine, ten kids deep, you know. So I don't think that's the the that we were going to be targets for that kind of thing. But, you know, these small towns, they cover this stuff up all the time. They don't talk about it. You know, it could have been going on and I just had no idea. I mean, look at... Look at Malibu, you know, just a place I, I, I visit occasionally. And there was a serial killer in Malibu in the campgrounds and the sheriff's department completely covered it up. I mean, it happens all the time, right? It, it does. And, uh, you know, yeah, you're, it was a good idea. You and your friends kind of rolled together. That was a good thing. Same thing with me. I normally had a buddy with me or two buddies on bicycles or something. So it's hard to teach kid. But on those early mornings at four in the morning, sitting at a bus stop, I mean, you're you're easily prey to somebody. And I'm sure that a lot of us have been in the position that we just didn't know it, that somebody was looking at us with those type of ill intentions. We just never knew about it. The coincidence that I happened to be on death row many years later, and the guy who was looking at me happens to be there, that's a pretty interesting situation. So, yeah. But yeah, with no further ado, let's definitely get into this Oakland County child killer because this is a very interesting case. Yeah, and they haven't found the guy, assuming it's one guy, but we'll get to that later. But they haven't solved this, so uh, let's talk about, why don't we start with the victims and the circumstances of how they were found and all that. Okay, yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, this is, these particular four of them, four victims were found between February of 1976 and March of 1977. The first victim is a young boy by the name of Mark, and I want to pronounce this correctly, so forgive me if I didn't pronounce it, but Stevens. And Mark Stevens, he's 12 years old. He's a seventh grader at Lincoln Junior High School. Uh, small stature, average, four foot eight, 100 pounds. Um, he was um, he was found. He died and was found of basically strangulation due to smothering. Um, he had rope burns on his neck, wrists, and ankles. So that means that he was tied. Um, he was uh, sexually assaulted with a foreign object. And he was found four days after he disappeared and was thrown on a wood pile in a parking lot of an office complex in Southfield. He actually, the day of his disappearance, he called his mother at 1.30 p.m. on February the 15th, 1976. Uh, he told her he was leaving the American League Hall or Legion Hall and going home. Uh, he never showed up. 
and at 11 o'clock, his mother uh, calls law enforcement. And a manhunt starts for this young boy. And then he's found, as I mentioned, on February the 19th by a businessman named Mark Bodenheimer or something to that effect. And I'm horrible with names. So and this guy was walking to a drugstore located inside of the New Orleans Mall when he saw what he believed was a mannequin with a blue jacket. When he approached it, he realized there was actually a child. Uh, this was about 11.45 a.m. But witnesses state that they were past that area at 9.30 a.m. and that body wasn't there. So the so Mark was thrown there between 9.35-ish and about 11.30 in the morning. Yeah, so what's going on with that? That's not a typical thing. The guy whoever committed this crime he's not even trying to conceal it this is as you just described in a parking lot where people are walking past in the morning when people are more, you know most likely to be out and so what what is the the pathology there that the guy didn't even try and make an effort to conceal what it, the body well yeah well most times oftentimes and sometimes they don't, but serial killers like their work looked at. Uh, this is a long time ago. Serial killers were a bit less sophisticated than they are today. Um, there's, there's, there's a much more uh, information that serial killers can gather on the techniques of evidence gathering that police used to. Back then they didn't. But for the most part, serial killers that leave bodies in public areas want the child found or the victim found. So it, it gives a bit of, it, it makes that monumental moment for them kind of filled with celebration. And, and I'm using the word celebration because this is the word that a serial killer gave me. He said he liked to know that his works were being celebrated. So, and you're right, this is 11, anywhere between 9, 45, 10, 11 at a mall. And you know, malls in the 70s were very... Now, the one thing that does make me pause is the date. February 15th, it's probably still very cold. So maybe not a lot of people, but it is a public area. And this killer left Mark there. And he took a chance of leaving a body there when someone could have easily seen him do it. And obviously, he took him in a car there and dropped him off. So that was a risk. Let me call you back. Yeah, so, and this is before I was born, but even when I was younger, you could get away with this. Certainly in your lifetime, people could get away with this. I mean, if, if you did this now, assuming you were in a vehicle at a mall, there's cameras everywhere, they would just find you within a week, right? Yeah, are there even, uh, are there even malls these days? I thought they were all closed by now, but yeah, you could be right. But yeah, there's cameras everywhere, and people have phones with cameras. It's, it's a different age, a different time. But when this happened, it's very easy to get away with something like this. Right. So that's the first victim, and I guess that could be... I, uh, not Random isn't the right word, but um, 
you know, but then they find some more and, and that's when people get kind of hip to what's going on here. Well, yeah, but this case, obviously the person, um, the killer is a killer of opportunity. He had no idea that this, um, young boy would be at a certain time, a certain date. He was basically snatched up and it was opportunity. Um, same thing with the next victim, Jill Robinson, age 12. Well, hold on, uh, uh, hold on real quick. Uh, just clarify this. When you say opportunity, does that mean there's an impulsivity to it? Or is, is does the guy go out looking for the opportunity? Yeah, that's a good question. And most of the time, these guys are cruising. Some serial killers cruise. They don't have any idea that they're going to run across a child at that time. And if they do, they look at the circumstances and then they snatch the child. And that is what I believe happened here. He didn't, he wasn't sitting there outside the home. He didn't see the child before this and he didn't follow him out. Um, this is something that was opportunity, very much like William Bond and the freeway killer. He found kids on truck stops at uh, bus stops, <laughs> like me, um, and walking on the street, hitchhiking. There are different ways to find these type of victims, and I believe that's what this uh, killer did, and that makes him an unorganized killer. Organized being a killer who stalks his victims, studies his victims, fantasizes about his victims, and then takes his victims. Okay. All right. So you were moving on to the next victim. Yeah. So, um, and like I said, Mark, Mark was at the the Legion, the uh, American Legion Hall, and he calls home. There's no way the killer could have known that. So on the way home, he was seen and then taken. Very similar to how Jill Robinson was taken. She had an argument with her mother about something. And she went upstairs, she dressed, she packed some clothes, took a blanket, put it in a denim bag, and left on her bicycle. Again, this is a situation that was spur of the moment. That child could not have known they were going to be at that particular place. So this killer was watching. He was stalking. Uh, it's very similar to how a person who steals cars just drives around looking for the car he wants. This is similar to what happened here. And um, she rode her bicycle to a hobby shop on Woodward Avenue, about four blocks from her home. When she did not return home by 11.30 p.m., which, again, that is a bit weird for me. If I was missing from my home for an hour after 8 o'clock at night, my parents would have been on the phone looking for me. Her father waits till 11.30 p.m. Maybe this was a habit, I don't know, to file a report. Witnesses say they saw her that morning, it could be the, the following morning, at the Donut Depot on Maple Road between 6 a.m. and 7 a.m. in the morning. And that was the last time she was seen. Four days later... She, her body is found, and it's off of I-75 um, near Big Beaver Road in Troy. And this, this made me pause because she's a 12-year-old girl. 
she's not sexually abused, and she is shot in the face at close range, which what we believe is a shotgun. Um, she's fully clothed. She's lying on her back. As I mentioned, she's not sexually assaulted. Now, in my experience, this would not make me connect the two murders. The only thing that I could see that's close relation is that they're from basically the same area and that they're both, they're, they're both children, but they're two, two different genders. One is smothered, sexually assaulted. The other one is not sexually assaulted. She has, she's fully clothed. She's wearing the same clothes she wore the day she disappeared. She's found four days later and she's shot in the face. I, I, I don't, I cannot see a connection here as to why police found that both of these cases were related. I guess just the ages, but yeah, that's the age and the proximity yeah, where yeah. they were taken from. Yes. So what? 99 times out of a hundred, 95 times out of a hundred. If someone's abducting an adolescent, it's sexually motivated, right? Yeah. But we also know that perpetrators can, they don't need to have sexual penetration or sexually assault a person to have a sexual experience. They can pose the child, they can kill the child. Um, part of the control for them could be killing them and then masturbating. So these are things that killers do. It just depends. Each killer is different. We know this. We, we've talked about this. But in my opinion, right now, I don't see a connection between the two aside from the proximity where they're taken from as well as that they were both children, but they're different genders. Usually pedophiles of little boys don't like little girls and vice versa. Uh, if you're going to take your pedophile, you take a child, you take them for the reason of sexual gratification. You don't shoot them in the face. The first person was smothered. Second was shot in the face. Totally different MOs, totally different signatures. So I don't see a connection between these two, although law enforcement has confirmed that they are related. And we'll obviously get into that more, but that's my opinion right now. Yeah. So I was trying to figure out last night, I was doing a little research, and and I had to be careful what I was Googling, <laughs> but I was trying to figure out. So, so from your experience with these guys that like to... Uh, rape and kill children how many of them prefer boys like what percentage what what's the stats there boys or girls well that's a good question the ones on death row that i met as i mentioned william bonnie and there's a number there's a number of other ones um
they are pedophiles and they like women. Then you have someone like Richard Ramirez who liked boys and girls. And he was, I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but he's the nice stalker. He killed women, he raped women, he sodomized them, he killed men. But prior to this, he was also raping and molesting children, both boys and girls. So it really depends on the insect. And I call them insects because, well, that's how I call them. But it really, there's no set percentage. Yeah. And, and quickly, we should move on. But but the the last thing, I guess from what you just described, I kind of figured that the targets for child molesters or child rapists, probably what they should be called. Um, I, I figured that it was more common with boys, uh, for boys to be the victims. But, and again, then I realized my internet history might be a little compromised. So, but uh, from what I read, uh, girls are actually more likely. And, and that kind of shocked me. And I, I don't know if that's true, but I, w I was honestly really surprised to read that. Well, I'm not so much because I've kind of delved into what, you know, the psychology, you and I are both men. So our fear is of being taken as a child or as a man, whatever you want to call it. So we relate closer to boys being abducted and it becomes easier. Where I'm sure if you ask women what is more likely, they'd say, well, of course, girls and women are more likely to be sexually abused and sexually molested. So I think it's it's your own psychology, how you see things, how you view things, and what your perspective is about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, uh, let's move on in our narrative here. Yeah, the third victim is a young girl named Christine Michelic. She was 10. Um, she lived with her mother in Berkeley, was a fifth grader uh, at... Penningill Elementary School. And she was last seen on January the 2nd, 1977. She actually left a bowling alley where her mother worked to go to a 7-Eleven. The 7-Eleven was on 12 Mile Road in Oakshire, or at Oakshire. And she disappeared. She wasn't discovered till 19 days later by a mail courier, uh, in a snowbank at the end of a dead end in Franken Village. And the day her, of her, that she was discovered was January the 21st. Now, when she was found, her autopsy was not performed for another 24 hours because she was frozen through and through. The, the autopsy did reveal that she was suffocated, but she was not sexually molested. So here again, we have a different type of, same MO which you snatch a child, but the age, 10, there's a big difference between a 10 and 12 year old. They're both children, but one is substantially more young. She's a little girl as well. Um, she's taken by chance. What I mean by chance is, it was an opportunity taking. No one knew she'd be there because no one knew she was leaving a bowling alley to go to a 7-Eleven. Um, she is suffocated and she's not sexually assaulted. She was in the same clothes that she had on the day she left. And her stomach revealed that she had eaten 
So someone had been taking care of her, and she was suffocated. She was suffocated 24 hours, or approximately 24 hours prior to her being found. So for nearly 19 or 18 days, she's alive, being fed, and she is somewhere. No one knows where she was kept. Again, this is different from the other ones in that sense. Yeah. So is there a thing where, like a primal thing, uh, I'm trying to hash out my idea here, but this is all very disturbing, obviously, but the girl being shot in the face is atypical. And is there some kind of thing where, even though these guys are, are destroying the person that that's almost too graphic for a lot of them or, or I don't know, too, too explicit, too, too gory, or am I, am I just well, obviously not. Off? I mean, killing someone is pretty graphic, but I know what you mean. A shotgun to the face is extremely, it destroys the person. It's a different type of killing than suffocating. Suffocating is very personal. Uh, a lot of killers, because children are so small, it's very easy to suffocate them because they're so much bigger. I know that some police at some point thought the person could be at a similar age, maybe 16, 17 years old. I don't agree with that. And let me call you back. Hey, man. Yeah, that seems stupid. I mean, right off the bat, top of my head, 16, 17-year-old kid is a moron. You know, they're going to brag to their creepy friends and they're going to get busted. Well, I would agree with you in most terms. And yeah, for the most part, that would be. But if he's a loner, if he's already a serial killer, he probably would not brag. He would be a person who was really into himself, a loner. He dresses different. He feels himself to be separate from other people. And this is kind of a typical profile of people who have these type of intentions, these instincts or these impulses, and they really can't control them. They don't find anybody of their age or anybody they can really relate to, so they stay to themselves. The longer they stay to themselves, the more introverted they become, the less um, interested they become with their appearance, and they kind of live in their own little world. So I would disagree that it's, it's a 16 or 17-year-old child doing this. Um, I believe this person is a man. Um, where would a 16-year-old boy put a, a, a child for 19 days? It makes no sense. And this is sometimes why I have a problem with these reports being put out by different agencies. They have no idea what they're talking about. And um, this is a perfect case where I think they made a mistake in their assumption that it's the same person. But, you know, let's go on to the last person that the law enforcement believe were connected. So the last person is a little boy by name of Timothy King. And he left his home under the skies of night. He told he borrowed 30 cents from his sister because he wanted to run down to, or actually ride down or, or, or take down, uh, I'm sorry, ride or run down to the Hunter Maple Pharmacy. The clerk says that she actually sold him candy at 8.30 p.m. and he left through the back door into a dark parking lot. Um, their parents got home that night about 9 p.m. The back door was ajar, and there was no sign of Timothy. Um, and really, they started searching for him. They could not find him. He um, he was later, you know, found. He was found on March 23rd, 1977, um, in a ditch 
along Gill Road, about 300 feet or so south of Eight Mile Road. Uh, he was found by a driver of a car, and his body was very short, was very close to an intersection. He was wearing the same clothes that he left the pharmacy with. His skateboard was found a few feet from him, and the autopsy revealed that he had been fed his favorite meal, which was Kentucky Fried Chicken. He had been cleaned, groomed thoroughly before he was suffocated. And there was evidence that he was sexually assaulted. Okay, so I hadn't thought of this before, but as we move on in the story, we're going to talk about a child pedophile ring that was a bona fide real thing and and that included the production of child pornography so the cleaning and grooming that kind of leads me in a certain direction do you get what i'm saying i I do Uh, but let me just say this before we go on i would say that in terms of these four murders a and b meaning mark stebbings and timothy king are more closely related to each other and more likely that were performed and killed. What I mean by performed was that they were murdered by uh, the same person. We have similar MOs, we have similar uh, signatures, we have similar case, being the age group, etc. So that to me would be two people that, uh, that could be related there, Mark Stibbings and Timothy King. The two girls, seem to be really possibly the same person. And what I was thinking, Matt, was you maybe have two killers and their team. And the first one was with one. The second two were for the the, 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 the co-defendant or the co-killer. And the last one, we went back to the, to, the, to the initial guy who did it. Now, we have seen guys who kill together. Serial killers sometimes team up. They have similar tastes or maybe a, a bit different different tastes. And this would be a case where you have two dominant, two dominant serial killers working together. Um, they might be living together, and they have separate tastes. One likes boys. The other one likes girls. Do you see where I'm getting at with this? Yeah. So those two types of guys, even though they prefer a different gender, they, they could be kind of buddies and partners because the the one thing they have in common is they, they like children. That's what you're saying. Correct. It's, it's very uncommon because most of the time you have a dominant and a submissive. In the, uh, we've talked about it before, and it's, it's just that one's more dominant. They're both killers. They're both rapists, etc. but one's more dominant than the other one. He makes the plan. He's more the organizer. Here we have two different mindsets. It's a lot more rare to have these types, but it's a possibility. Look, we don't know who the killer is here, but in my opinion, it's possible, but I don't believe that these four killings were all by one guy. I would suggest that there's probably two involved or two separate people altogether. Yeah. So I think we both alluded to that maybe law enforcement was, uh, maybe didn't exactly know what they were doing on this one. So we get to this kind of red herring where was it 
Mark or Timothy, uh, one of the boys was seen standing near a blue gremlin. A, a gremlin is the Wayne's World car, little weird looking car. And uh, so they had this whole county on alert for a blue gremlin. And I think it was a pretty relatively common car back then. So, but th that's pretty tenuous evidence. Okay, he was standing near a, a car you know it's detroit for christ's sake there's cars everywhere so i mean would the killer if he's reading the newspapers about a blue gremlin would he be driving that car around because apparently they would just pull over anyone driving a blue gremlin and that was like the best they could do well yeah if they put a news report on you'd be less likely if that's the only car you have then i could see him continue to drive but back then gremlin was a pretty common car they were all over the place so these are just, remember, these are witnesses that come up and say, look, I saw this. So law enforcement immediately says, okay, we, we got a witness that says this, let's check into this. They'd be incompetent not to check into this. But understand that these are random people who are saying this. It could be anybody just wants attention. And because this killer or killers left these people, these children, in such public areas where they can be seen, it's very, it looks like they just they stopped, they dropped the person off, and then just took off in their cars. It, there's a very good possibility that if you check the records of who was contacting police, I'm willing to bet that the perpetrators of these crimes contacted the police to get a, a bit of a, to throw them off a little bit, to get involved in, in the investigation, to just feel like they're part of it. And I say this because they left the cops and left the, I'm sorry, children in very open spaces where the public can see them. And they like, meaning they like to show off their work. They like to display their work. People usually like that, in my experience, like to contact um, law enforcement, become part of the investigation in some way, shape, or form. Right, right. Like writing taunting letters things like that yeah well you know look, look at bill suff bill suff the, the riverside killer he raped and killed a number of sex workers and he was in the public eye because he was at the city council he was arguing that these people were a a, a you know a eyesore that the, all these sex workers should be taken out yet he's the one raping and killing them he also injected himself in the investigation by uh, delivering the furniture for the task force that was signed to catching him. So he got very close to them. He talked to them. This is all part of things that people do who like to display their work. Bill Self, as we know, displayed his, his work. He left them in places where he wanted to give messages. He'd leave them in a trash can bin. In other words, calling the people, the victims, trash. So this is how these guys sometimes think. So there's a couple of really cool documentaries on YouTube on this case that if you listeners are interested, I would check out. But we now get into so in, in the documentary, they use the term the pedophile community quite a bit. And when I heard that, I was like, well, come on, there's no pedophile community. It's not like pedophiles, uh, you know, I'll go to the same sports bar or, or something. But in this case, actually, it would. They actually did, yeah. There's an island yeah. called North Fox Island, and that's just a, a few miles uh, 
uh, out, out off the coast of Detroit, off the, Jesus, off the coast of Detroit. I sound like a moron, but anyway, it's in the, so there's North Fox Island. It's in Lake Michigan. And this, uh, this, I don't know, socialite, this scion, this trust fund bitch, Francis Sheldon, he, he bought this island. It was for sale for $3,500. And on a side note, if you if there's any islands that I can buy in Lake Michigan or any of the Great Lakes or anywhere in the U.S. for that kind of money, even in inflation adjusted, I don't know if you can still do that. I don't understand why an island was for sale for that kind of money, um, but it might be something to look into. If I can buy an island and just sit on it, just own it, I I want to do that. To me, that seems better than buying a condo as far as investments go because there just aren't that many islands. Um, so anyway, this guy, Sheldon, buys the island and puts an airstrip on it. And in terms of the pedophile community, he's friends with a lot of these aristocrats, another guy, Chris Bush. So Sheldon has relations with the, uh, uh um, relations. He, he's related to a former governor. He's like upper crust, you know, he's real in it. And this guy, Chris Bush was, uh the son of the executive of General Motors. So these guys, and, and there's more of them, but they're all kind of hobnobbing with each other and, and openly engaged in child pornography. And it's like, this is when people talk about the Illuminati and these conspiracy theories and Epstein and who also had an island and, and they're not wrong some of the time. You know, sometimes conspiracies are true, but uh, if I can stop rambling, this North Fox Island, this is some crazy shit, right? Well, it kind of reminds you, because this, this happened back in the 70s. It, hap it happened a couple of years ago. We know it happened a couple of years ago. A guy by the name of Epstein, remember? He also had connections to presidents and governors and stuff like that. And the guy was a freaking pot chomelet. This isn't that rare. It happens a lot. People just are not willing to look under these dirty little rocks to find these little creeps. But yeah, this guy Sheldon had his own plane, his own company, his own freaking um, airstrip, and he was taking young boys there. Yeah, no, this is something um, totally in the the realm of creepiness. Let me call you back, and we can get into this creep. Okay. Yeah. So the the charity space, often a, the bread and butter for grifters and hucksters and con artists. This guy Sheldon starts a a fake charity which brings boys to the island so that they can explore nature and stuff. And it's a front for a, a pedophile ring. Yeah, no, and again, yeah, this happens a lot. But look, I don't believe that these guys were involved in the Oakland County child killer. And look, I'll make it really simple because we could talk about these two creeps all day long and not even scratch the surface. They're pieces of garbage. Everybody knows it. We know it. They have died. Um, Sheldon fled the country in 1976 and was never prosecuted and then died in 1976. And um, look, the truth of the matter is they were not the county killers. They're, that's not them. And I'll tell you why. It's real simple. Look, these boys to them, if they were in pornography rings, are or any kind of sex trade, they are the 
the product, and I've talked about this with you before, normally they don't kill the kids they have. The kids weren't deformed. The kids were, for all accounts, good-looking children. They were normal kids. These are the kind of people that are, that are really uh, appeal to these type of men. So they would not be killing the product. So we could just scratch them off the list. It was not these guys. These guys are pieces of garbage, but they were not in connection to the Oakland County uh, serial killer. Yeah, I feel like they also wouldn't bury the body off Eight Mile Road. They would, most obviously, they have a private plane. They'd bury bodies on the island, but uh, you don't think there's bodies? Or dump them. You don't think there's bodies on that dump island? Dump them on the plane. Yeah, or throw them out. But, I mean, what are the odds there's bodies on that island? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, honestly, I, I don't think that this guy was that dumb. I mean, look, again, if they were involved in this case, pictures would have surfaced. They would have had some kind of evidence that suggested that these four children that we spoke about previously as being victims of this particular killer or killers would have come up in something. And they, they weren't. So um, my the odds are probably 100% it was not them. Okay, so do we have any good suspects in your opinion? Well, there's a number of different ones. Um, you know, there's there's a psychiatrist that got a letter, and that psychiatrist says, I know who the killer is, because the killer identified himself as Alan, and he refers to the killer as a guy named Frank. And, and there's a lot of different allegations made here about who the killer is, how he worked, um, but the truth of the matter is, the letters just stopped coming. A lot of people believe it was a hoax. It could have been a killer, just to see him to get a rise from the cops, but nothing came of that. So that, again, is, is a dead end. We don't know who the person was that wrote the letters. Um, but we did have a guy by the name of Chris, Christopher Bush, and his family members believe that he is the Oakland County killer. How convinced they are, they're very convinced. Um, and he did, he was arrested at one point and he did confess to sexually assaulting children. But he never confessed to um, the crimes of the four kids. And I'm just very, sometimes his family members say that this guy is a certain guy. I'm sometimes a little remiss to say, okay, yeah, I believe this. Because sometimes people act a certain way and family members are not experts. They don't understand how these people work. So anything weird, they report it and they immediately say, well, this guy must be the killer. Yeah. Well, the fact that he committed suicide shortly after being arrested, he's arrested for child pornography, not for the killings. But that doesn't look good for him, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. That, that is true. And look, the truth is that his DNA did not match any physical evidence. So that right there crosses me, crosses him out. Remember, this is a time when there was no DNA. There was no really typing of DNA. So killers didn't know, even know about this evidence. So they were, it was very easy for them to leave evidence, um, and, it was, and it would have been collected. So this guy is not the killer either. Um, Another guy was James Vincent Gunnels. Um, now, in this case, there was, uh, you know, here's a, a case where 
But remember, he was 16 years old at the time of the killings. But he, they believe that he may have been part of the child killings or he was used to lure the kids. Now remember, we had a case of the Candyman and he used accomplices to lure children. Now this is plausible. You know, there was a micro piece of DNA that matched, that found on Christine Mitchell's body. And it matched a piece of Gunnell's or a male relative of his mother's side. That doesn't make this kid guilty. But with today's evidence, I'm asking the question, why hasn't this piece of evidence been thrown through the new genealogy science and the new tools to narrow it down to find out who this guy was or is or a closely related family member and they could actually catch this guy? So there's an interest there for James Vincent Gunnels. Right. Right. But if, you know, I don't think the killings are related. I didn't before. And then after talking to you, I kind of confirmed that. So that just makes it so much more complicated to catch the guy if it's probably not just one guy. Yeah. Uh, really, the truth of the matter is you have a lot of bad people in this type of stuff. And you're going to run across a lot of creepy people. We can't jump to conclusions on based on that. But this guy definitely, he'd stay on my list of someone that could know somebody, someone who may be related to somebody that could be the killer. So I would definitely keep it on my list. The other two guys were Theodore uh, Lamborghini and Richard Lawson. Now, these guys are interested because they were charged with 19 counts of sexually assaulting children. And Lawson faced 28 similar charges. However, police have taken these guys off the list and they don't believe that these guys were actually involved with the Oakland child killer. Although, Lawson, who is serving life in prison for molestation of children, says that he knows who the Oakland County child killer is. And he named him. He named a guy by the name of Bobby Moore as he's also a deceased member of the sex ring, but as the killer. This can easily be investigated by getting that micro piece of DNA and comparing it to Bobby Moore to see if he actually is the killer. Right. Do you think that's going to happen? You know, it's unfortunate, but in these days and times, it's been so long that unless someone really presses for this to be done, the family or shows like ours that we talk about these old cases to hopefully bring interest back into the fold. I don't think it usually always happens. There's a lot of cases sitting on shelves, cold cases. It's more likely to be looked at now than before, but we need more people to step forward. We need more shows like ours to talk about these cases, to bring public interest to these cases, to give those children a bit of justice. Yeah. But like you said, there's just so many creeps, you know, I don't have a great faith in humanity, but as we were talking, I just went to a sex offender registry and looked up my zip code. So there are like 
dozens of zip codes in the LA area. And this is just my neighborhood, you know, that that's uh, the west, southwest side of LA. So not like, um, it's, it's not all of LA. Anyway, 620, 620 sex offenders uh, within, looks like three, <laughs> three miles of my house. That's, well, that's what I mean. And look, this is an important part of being diligent and a good parent. Um, I suggest that every parent that's listening, every parent, or, or if you have a nephew and niece, you should actually do what Matt just did. Go on to sex registry, um, sexual offender registries for child molestation or rapists or people of that, you know, type. And look at your area, a four-mile radius, and see how many there are. Look at how many are living close to your house. What is their MO? What were they convicted of? What type of children they're after? And you have a pretty good idea of what's going on. It's called being very diligent about who you care about. I suggest every person do it. Look, you know how I feel about child molesters and people who harm children. And in my book, there is no redemption from that. There is no rehabilitation from that. It's who you are by impulse and who you're going to be for the rest of your life. So my suggestion is if you can find 800 and some around your neighborhood back and you have children or you have nieces and nephews or people you care about, find out where these people, these creeps are. Find out where they are. It's public record. Post it on your freaking, uh, on your on your neighborhood watch board that this guy lives in a particular place. I know there's there are groups of, uh, what do you call it, rights for sexual predators or pedophiles or whatever are going to disagree with me you know what fuck them I don't care those guys cannot be rehabilitated and they're going to strike again they're going to take a child and ruin a child's life so I know that's my little rant right here but man it's how I feel about it those registries are out there find out who lives around you that's why I always say you know be safe be aware of your surroundings your life could depend on I should expand it to your life or a loved one's life could depend on it. Yeah. God, there's one one of them point one miles from my house. That's like where my car is parked. It's frightening. Uh, yeah, gross. All right. Uh, that's it. We'll be back next time. Until then, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm willing to go. Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life and that of one of your loved ones could depend on it. We'll see you next time.